0: listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. read our teaching text for us which comes from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 6 it says as you come to him the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for in scripture it says see i lay a stone in zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. This is the word of God for the people of God. Speed of to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Max. Well, uh, we had a really great week as as a Cornerstone staff. We went to the C4SO retreat, and some of you might think that that is a Star Wars reference. It is not a Star Wars reference. C4SO stands for Churches for the Sake of Others. It's the name of the diocese of the Anglican Church that we belong to. And if you don't know what those words mean, we can talk about that at another time. But we got together with um, with, with all of the clergy, the pastors of in our diocese, C4SO, and it was really fun, really fresh. I love our staff, and it's good to get out of the rhythm and just be away. And uh, we we went up to tropical Kansas City, Kansas, for this retreat, and. Uh, and it was just, it was, it was really rich. My, one of my favorite parts is just the drive. I think it's a bonding experience to get out of what's normal and drive together and funny things, you know, happen. And we had a good couple of days, and on the way back, uh, Emily, my wife, was able to go with us. So Emily's in the passenger seat. Uh, three of our, our female staff are asleep in the back, preparing to come home to children, and they're making the most of their time. And my mind is just wandering which is fun when that happens. And you're like, you get into a certain focused zone on the road and you go to weird places, kind of trippy places sometimes. And I leaned over to Emily and I said, hey, follow me on this. She goes, okay. So you know how like when you're in the kitchen and you want to use the blender, you, you put it on the counter and you plug it in and you turn it on and it works. Isn't that cool? Okay, Yeah. It's like well you know like you, you turn it on and when it's plugged into the power it's connected to the power grid of the house it's connected to the power grid of the city of Tulsa and then it works but if you unplug it it stops working she's like okay like, now think about this and maybe just feel your pulse or put your hand feel your heartbeat what's so cool is that even though it's not attached to some kind of external power source unless you're one of the people in this room that has a pacemaker this thing this heart of ours just keeps beating Isn't that cool? You know, from the time I was born, my heart, this thing, this one-pound organ, you know, flesh tissue, has just kept beating in my chest. And and because you're in this room right now, yours is too. And, And except for in very, very rare moments, does it stop? And you remember those moments, or perhaps you don't, I'm not sure. But independent of some kind of external power source, we have this auto-generative organ within us, this like electrical system within our chest that makes our our blood flow through our bodies. And you know, you've had moments in, in nature where you're just amazed at the wonder of some national park or a wonder of the world, and I'm driving down the highway feeling my pulse and thinking how great it is to be alive. How thankful I am that this heart of mine just keeps beating. And then I began to wonder, why is it beating? And so we got to our destination and I Google, why is my heart beating? <laughs> and every, every result was presupposed that the question I was really asking is, why is my heart beating so fast? Which suggests that we're all in our anxiety using Google. It's probably stress, nine times out of ten. But I just wanted to know, why is my heart beating at all? It's just flesh and tissue, and this thing seems to be self-animating. And two people might look at the phenomenon of of the human heartbeat and explain it in different ways. One person might give a a natural explanation. While the sinoatrial node in the right atrium of the heart sends an electrical signal telling your heart to contract and to expand, and the contraction and the expansion causes the blood to flow through your body. And that is kind of a natural pacemaker, the way that this organ works. But that doesn't answer why it works or how it works. Another person may go to the Scriptures for an explanation of why are we alive. And I look at the Genesis 2 account of creation. It says, The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being a spark. Or we could go to John's gospel. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life that was present in him is the light of all people. We could go to Paul quoting the, the, the philosophers in Athens. He said, in him we live and move and have our being." And the first answer, the natural explanation could tell us what was happening but couldn't touch on why it was happening or how this auto-generative power supply in our chest continues to function. And the latter one considers that same question, how and why is my heart beating and answers in gratitude because the Lord wills it to be so. Because God wants this heart In my chest and in yours to continue beating, it is so. Now, the profound mystery of the persistent beating of the human heart points to this greater reality of our contingent nature. When I say our contingent nature, I mean that the fact that we exist is contingent, contingent on something else being true, that God wills us to exist. Apart from his word, apart from his will, we do not exist. But God said, let there be light, let there be land, let there be water, let there be man and woman in my image. We are contingent beings because he said so, we are. You and I did not choose to be born. We did not create ourselves. We cannot independently sustain ourselves. And this may prompt for the person who has that rare and wonderful moment of wonder at their own pulse and their own heart beating to wonder at some of the bigger realities beyond oneself and ask the questions about the purpose and the destiny of humankind. The catechism of our church asks the question, why do you call God the Father Creator? It says, "I call the God the Father Creator because He made all things. He creates and sustains all things through His word and gives life to all creatures through His spirit." And then it goes on to ask, how does recognizing God as creator inform your understanding of His creation?" And it says, "I acknowledge that God created for His own glory, for his own delight, everything that exists." He created human beings, male and female, in His image and appointed us stewards of creation. God's creation, including my own body, our world, is thus a gift to enjoy as we work and care for it. We would maintain that the path of wisdom belongs with the acceptance of this opening premise, that we are contingent beings, that we are because He has willed us to be. The path of wisdom begins with the recognition that we are fearfully and wonderfully created by God, and if you don't grasp or you haven't been told or you don't yet understand, you, you can't like, ex- embrace this opening premise, what follows from our perspective will run off the course of wisdom. In a similar way, Peter is, is speaking to these, these Jewish believers spread all throughout the Roman world. And he wants them, similarly, to accept an an opening premise that Jesus is the cornerstone, the sure foundation of our faith, and that for us to be well, for us to be wise, for us to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, we're meant to live in alignment, plumb to Christ who is the cornerstone, the chosen and precious cornerstone. You know, the, the placement of the first stone in a, in a grand work of construction, if you think about like the, the pyramids or the temple mount, the, the placement of the first stone in a building pro- project sets the angles for all of the other stones that will follow. The test for the right placement of every other stone will be its alignment to the cornerstone. Or some of you think about, you know, you've got kids, you're building with Duplos and Legos, and you've got your little mat, and you're going to build a house. The first thing that you, you lay down, everything else is going to be built in reference to that. When Peter uses this image of Christ as the, the precious and the chosen cornerstone, many of his readers, a Jewish, making their annual pilgrimage to the temple, would have thought about the massive structure of the temple mount. And you can go there today and see the western wall known as the Wailing Wall and see the size and the grandeur of of the foundation stones on which the temple was built. Or if you've been to Egypt and you've seen the pyramids, you know how awe-inspiring it is that without the use of heavy machinery, people were able to build these magnificent structures rightly called some of the wonders of the world. And they would picture the temple, the place that they would make their annual pilgrimage. And if you read Psalms 120 through 130 or so, we have the Psalms of Ascent. They're making their way up to Jerusalem. And there at the pinnacle of their sight, they see the temple. Jesus is the chosen and the precious cornerstone of this new temple that God is building. Peter says that this this building project that God is taking on is not to build another physical structure. It's not to build one more place in our geographical world that we all must stream to worship. Instead, the structure that God is building, the spiritual house, the temple of the Spirit, he says, is the community of those who've placed their faith in Jesus, our risen Lord. That It's, it's in the, the quality of our character and the caliber of our community that God is building a people among whom the Spirit dwells just as the Spirit came and moved in the tabernacle and in the temple of Israel. God is building us as the people of God into a temple now, the Spirit, and if we want to verify that we're getting our angles right, the shape of our life together right, we need to consider the degree to which we are aligned with and plumb to Christ, who is the precious and chosen cornerstone. We need to consider the degree to which we are aligned. It matters. In November 28th of 1979, there was a sightseeing flight that was taking off from New Zealand and making its way toward Antarctica, And that plane crashed into a mountain, killing all 257 passengers who'd been aboard. And in the investigation that followed, it showed that the pilots had been uninformed about a change to the flight path that changed the trajectory just by two degrees. And it put them on a course to run into Mount Erebus instead of passing over the McMurdo Sound, which they anticipated. In the world of aviation, we had two Southwest pilots at the first service who verified what I'm about to say, in the world of aviation, being off by just one degree can be highly consequential and dangerous, which is why pilots are taught what's called the one in 60 rule, which means that after 60 miles in the air, a one degree error results in being off course by one mile. And so if your destination is another 60 miles away, you're going to have to course correct by two degrees in order to get to where you want to go. Alignment with your target matters. Peter says to the the, the people of the church, be sure that you are aligned with Christ who is the precious and the chosen cornerstone. Now, every one of us, consciously and unconsciously, are building our lives around something. I'm curious, if a person were to do an independent investigation of your life, they have access to your your texts, your emails, your finances, your coming and going, they're tracking you on Find My Friends, they're, they're, they're having like a qualitative investigation conversation with you, and they're trying to get at what is the cornerstone of this person's life? What would they say of you? What is the cornerstone of your life? What is that which you're building your life around? For some of us, it may be the desire to be liked. It may be the desire to be rich, or really, more than anything, maybe remembering childhood memories, the desire never to feel poor again. That could be an animating goal or the cornerstone of one's life. The fear of failure. Some want to be so sure that you don't turn into your parents or that you don't live out kind of the family legacy in a negative way that's been passed on to you. For some, lacking a, a core sense of self and identity, the success of your children, is tantamount to like, like your life's goals coming true. If these small humans grow into successful, big humans who you know, reflect well on us, then I will be okay. Some have this motivation because of, you know, Childhood memories or teenage angst, the the fear to never look stupid again, or the fear to be, the desire to be respected, or you desire the advancement of your career. Some, the cornerstone of your life is I want people to think I'm right, or I want people to think I'm nice. I had a friend who recently officiated a funeral for an older gentleman. And he gathered around with the friends and family of the deceased, and they're, they're prepping to write the eulogy. And he's asking those kind of questions that pastors ask to draw out, tell me about this person. And about the only thing that people could say about the deceased was, well, he really liked playing golf. That is a sad conversation. If in all of your years and all of the things that you've been through, when they're looking back on you and like, how would I describe this person? What's their deal? What are they on about? They really liked golf. Ooh, that is sad. He talked about the, the greater sad reality in having a conversation with the son of the deceased who said, I wished I knew my dad as well as his golf buddies knew him. I wished my dad liked me as much as he seemed to like golf. Everyone is building their life around something. The invitation for those of us who are following Jesus is we want to build our life around Him. We want to build our life around the person of Jesus Christ. Well, what incarnation does that mean? Well, some will hear that and think that basically what I'm saying is that you need to invite Jesus into your heart so that when you die, you can spend eternity with Him. And I don't not mean that, but I mean so much more than that. When we think about Jesus as the cornerstone of our lives or building our lives around the person of Jesus, what does that mean? I would say that building your life around Jesus simply means taking seriously His words, His actions, His aims, and the overall shape of His life. We saying, "I will build my life upon your love. it is a firm foundation." What does that mean? To build your life around Jesus simply means taking seriously His words, his actions, his aims and the overall shape of his life, and then with God's help, bringing those realities to bear on the particularities of my own life. Okay, so what incarnation does that mean? Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 heard that it was said, love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I don't know if you have enemies. I had an arch nemesis as a child. He will go unnamed. <laughs> Maybe you have an arch nemesis. I would guess that you, you probably don't have people that you would, because you're a Christian and you want to be nice, say, that person is my enemy but I am sure there are people you don't like very much. I'm sure that there are people who, mm, they make your blood boil. Or you're driving down the road and you see a bumper sticker and you already know that you hate that person. (laughs) Or you see a sign in your yard and you are incredulous Why would a decent person put that side in there? I'm not saying I have these feelings, but perhaps you do. (laughs) Okay, I'm a person who wants to build my life around the person of Jesus. He's the cornerstone of my life. What does it mean to take seriously his words, his actions, his aims, the shape of his life? He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, taking that seriously might look like taking inventory of my relationships and paying attention when my blood pressure rises socially not just cuz i'm an introvert but because i don't like someone and with the help of the holy spirit doing a little investigative journalism over our own heart it's like what's the deal there why is that the case what is it about them what is it, what is it about me Jesus says, love your enemies. And I'm fairly certain you're not going to go from hate to love overnight, apart from like, the, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. But you might be able to go from actively hating them to praying that you won't hate them. doesn't even mean that you're going to like them. It means, Lord, this is a person. You made this person. I wish you hadn't. I'm not a fan. Would you change me to be the kind of person that doesn't hate? Would you help me to just not so actively dislike them and, and turn down the temperature in my own heart? And you might even work your way toward, all right, Lord, how can I bless this person? It is not the thing that I want to do. Maybe you'd bless them by praying for them. Maybe you'd bless them by... <laughs> you see the bumper sticker and you like like teenage boys dealing with lust? Bounce your eyes. Bounce your eyes away from the bumper sticker. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Instead of asking, how can I get back at them? How can I put them in the right place? How can I make sure other people dislike them and I feel validated in my dislike? How can I show them love? And Jesus, lift the Lord, lift these people up to the Lord in prayer. It could mean, you know, I think the easiest, you know, place to consider is the people with whom you disagree politically. I think it's more likely to be your brother-in-law because brother-in-laws, right? You know, I have nothing against, I have a great brother-in-law, but it's people in your circle. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. You just get worn out by the people you're around all the time more than likely someone like with whom you're you're regularly interfacing that's the one the lord is saying to you love your enemies love that person and pray for the people who persecute you this is beginning to entertain what does it look like to build my life around jesus well i'm taking seriously jesus said that matthew chapter 5 or we could go to matthew chapter 6 and jesus said be careful not to do to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them Jesus has no issue with us practicing our righteousness. He talks about praying and fasting and giving. We should do those things. He said we should be careful of doing those things motivated by a desire to be seen by others as spiritually awesome. He says don't do it. and He advocates for us to cultivate a rich secret life, especially for that person who feels that, that pious motivation to be seen as spiritual and awesome. So Jesus says, pray, but don't pray like, you know, the pagans who are wailing on and on in order to be seen by others. Instead, when you pray, go into your inner room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And when your father who is in secret sees what you're doing, he'll reward you. And when you give, don't announce it. Don't be a, you know, a huge public benefactor. But when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Give in secret. And when your Father, who sees what is done in secret, he will see it and he will reward you. Or when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who, you know, they look all gaunt and, and they want, look super spiritual. No, don't do that. When you fast, wash your face. Girl, wash your face, you know? Put oil on your head. And when your father, who sees what is done in secret, he's going to reward you for it. Be careful, taking seriously the words of Jesus. Okay, so now I'm taking inventory of my heart again. In what ways am I, I have this impulse to do a good thing, a spiritual thing, a religious thing, the stuff the pastor said to do, but I'm doing it in order to be seen by others so that they think I'm awesome. To build one's life around Jesus means taking seriously his words, his actions, his aims, and the shape of his life. It means being careful not to do these things with the motivation of being seen. Or when Jesus says, do to others as you would have them do unto you. Or when Jesus says, whatever you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to me. Well, what does it look like to take the words, the actions, the aims of Jesus seriously? It's to consider, well, who are the least of these? Who are those culturally who are on the outside? I think of the poor. I think of the immigrant. I think of the widow. I think of the orphan. And you might have a natural way of thinking about people that you might put into a category informed by your political perspective or your philosophy of life. And Jesus says, I want you to imagine that you were that person, that you were the foreigner in a strange land, that you were the person on the street corner, that you were the widow, that you are the orphan, and some of you know what it's like to be each of those. And I want you to treat those people in the way that you would want to be treated by those who say they love God if you were in their position. Hey it looks like I might need to get in proper perspective and in their proper place, my political affiliations, my philosophy of life, and submit them to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, making sure I'm in alignment with Him who is the, the precious cornerstone, and not merely with the party talking points. I was thinking I didn't plan this, but I was, I was thinking that taking Jesus seriously, his words, his actions. His aims and the shape of his life seriously even helps us when we're dealing with tragedy and grief. And so perhaps you've seen that there was another horrific, stupid shooting, this time in Allen, Texas. Every one of us has gone to the Banana Republic Superstore in Allen, Texas. And of the most normal and everyday of places, someone made these choices. What does it look like to be a person inhabiting a world where evil shows up, taking seriously the words and the actions and the aims and the shape of Jesus' life? Well, it gives us space to mourn and to lament and to express our deep grief. Jesus at the tomb of of Lazarus is weeping alongside Mary and Martha, and I think Jesus joins us in our grief. One of my dear friends in the church lost one of her very dear friends who died way, way, way too young. What does it look like to build one's life around Jesus when you're standing in the face of grief and tragedy? Well, it is to lament because we're allowed to. Jesus did. It is to mourn. Jesus mourned. It is to weep. Jesus wept, but we also weep and we mourn and we lament, but not as those who are without hope because Jesus promised us that he would return to restore and renew the earth, that Jesus would return to raise the dead. And so even in our grief, Even in the face of tragedy, we can lament and grieve and complain and do works of justice and also do all of this as those who have hope. The more we consider Jesus as the cornerstone of the plumb line of our lives, the more each of us realize how not just the world writ large or institutions or systems, but me, John Odom, me, you, can be misaligned from Christ, who is the cornerstone. I think for those of us who are being trained by the gospel, this ought not fill us with a sense of shame. This doesn't need to provoke in us this like, self-flagellating tendency. Though we merely need to see it as, as it is and regard ourselves as the gospel trains us to see ourselves. All we like sheep have gone astray, have run askew, have gone off course, each of us to our own ways. We don't need to shame ourselves or like a pet rubbing their face in it you know, and telling them, no. No, we simply need to be mindful of the way in which we've gone off course and invite the Holy Spirit to aid us into course correction. And so with God's help, even in the middle of this conversation, you may be aware of ways in which you are a degree off or two degrees off or 25 degrees off, or you're simply going in the wrong direction, and the Holy Spirit may be prompting you to course correction with His help. And I would say, to, to the degree to which you are aware of this, recognize that it is a gift of grace. If you've been flying off course on your own for, for a while in life, and you're two degrees off course, uh, you know the, the law of the one in sixty shows us you don't need to just adjust by two percent. But on how long you've been going like this, you might actually need to adjust by four percent to get where you want to go. And this is what leads us to what I call holy impulsivity. That the Holy Spirit may be prompting you, like, let's pay attention to the way that you talk about other people. Let's pay attention to the way that you marginalize this group of people or this area in your life where you're not yet trusting me. The Holy Spirit may be prompting you to take action with a kind of holy impulsivity. Maybe if you struggle with lust or you struggle with greed or with the, you know, obsession with the approval of others, with holy impulsivity, the Spirit may be inviting you to wage an outsized response. So here's an example. Zacchaeus, so a wee little man, wee little man was he, climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord something something to see. You know the song. Zacchaeus is is up in a tree. He's a tax collector. He's, He's seeing Jesus coming at a distance, and he's curious. And Jesus makes his way to the sycamore tree, and he looks up at little Zacchaeus hiding in the tree and says, I'm going to your house. Zacchaeus had been extorting people of money. He'd been defrauding investors. And in the presence of Jesus, he feels this compulsion to course correct and to set things straight. And he stands up unprompted by Jesus. He says, here in the presence of all of you, I want to tell you for everyone that I'm defrauded, I'm paying you back two times or four times. I'm going to make it right with you. And Jesus says, truly salvation has come to this house because this man too is a child of Abraham. He did not merely invite Jesus into his heart, but taking seriously his words, his actions, his aims, the shape of his life, he did the work of financial justice. Like course correcting with a kind of holy impulsivity in waging an outsized response against the idol of mammon in his heart. I'm a big fan of holy impulsivity. So maybe you're a person who struggles with um, lust. Or maybe you just struggle with you've habituated yourself into too much screen time in your life. I dare you. Don't overthink it. Don't think about what you're going to put on the wall afterward. I dare you to go home and take your TV down and put it in a closet. Don't even discuss it with your spouse and just see what happens. <laughs> or your roommates. Go take the TV off your wall and just leave it there. See what the Lord wants to do in your life. Or like your own social media, and when you really think about it, it doesn't add any value to your life. You can just quit it. You can call someone on the phone, like you find out who you're actually connected to. You could just quit it. You may recognize that like wealth is a really big obstacle in your ability to respond to the gospel, and uh, I was going to say something. I was going to say half something you're giving to the Lord, half bottoming. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> giving to the Lord, and the Lord may be inviting you to double or triple your giving. Give it to another church if you think that I'm trying to profiteer off of this. But if, there's, if you're aware that there's an idol in your heart, there's an area of your heart in which you need to course correct, the Spirit's prompting you to do it with holy impulsivity, take an outsized action against it and invite the Spirit to set you free from that thing. In whatever way the Spirit prompts you to respond to that which is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent or praiseworthy, wherever God is prompting you, just go for it. Act with holy impulsivity and see the kind of freedom that the Lord may invite you into. For peter this imagery of jesus is the starting point the sure and the precious foundation the place that we begin this is the place where we must start in our life with god but it's also reaching toward something greater an end that we ought to have in mind the catechism asks what does god desire to accomplish in your life in christ do you want to know the answer to this what does god hope to be true of you in your situation, with your personality and all the stuff he's been, you've been through, what does God desire to accomplish in your life in Christ? God desires to free you from captivity to sin and transform you into the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. His hopes and His intentions for you is not to have to s- struggle in the same ways with all the same things forever. Forever. There will be persistent things for us that we struggle with. Paul talks about his thorn in the side, but the ambition of Jesus, the, the, for those who build their life on him, is that we would be transformed into his image, that we would walk into a room, we'd have an interaction with a person, and they, they can smell him on us. That you and me, with all of our quirks and personalities and, and predilections, like, that they can sense his presence in us. Or as Peter said it, God wants to form you and me and us together as the people of God into a temple of the Holy Spirit or a spiritual house. He says he wants to make us into a holy priesthood so that when you walk in the room, the presence of Jesus comes with you, that you embody the light and the life of Jesus. And when we're with people, with the people on our heart, we lift them up. To the Lord, we're in this place with Jesus of interceding for humanity. He wants us to to make us into a a spiritual temple, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And in our own way, small way, as, as one local church, as a microcosm of the whole body of Christ, this is what we aim to do together. Not merely to get people connected or to have a building or to run a spiritual variety show, but Our ambition together is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things, that in our own awkward and small ways that the Lord Jesus would be formed in us, that people may see and smell him on us. And then in those places where there's darkness, there's decay, there's injustice in our world, though it may be just a drop in the bucket, we join God in the renewal of all things, and give the world a foretaste of what will happen when Jesus fulfills his promises to return and to join together heaven and earth, to restore broken creation and even to raise the dead. Let's pray together. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.